Take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to John, John's Gospel, chapter 2. Today we're looking at verses 1 through 12, and Jesus' first miracle, the one first of, I believe there's eight miracles in here that kind of frames what John is communicating about the Son of God, that he is the Son of God, and so today we begin with that. So let's stand on the reading of God's Word. Let us hear now the Word of the Lord that's inspired by His Spirit, John Chapter 2, I'll read 1 to 12. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, We have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is God's inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. May he bind it to our hearts and give us grace to live it out. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, this morning come come to you with no message of my own. So God, give me grace to be faithful to this word. I pray with, I would say only the things you would have me say. And that God, you would work in this body. You would do in us what you alone can do. And that is to transform us by the changing of our hearts, the renewing of our minds. So God, make us more like Jesus today. Give us grace to live our lives every moment, every moment, to glorify you and joy forever. We pray this all in his strong and mighty name, Jesus the Christ, amen. So, as with many weddings, there was a crisis at my wedding. I was married... 1995, that was before some of you are born. I know you're laughing at me now. So, yeah, that was before I was born or the year I was born or something like that. A long time ago. There's a crisis. And I remember the crisis like it was yesterday. Our wedding was set for 2 o'clock, 2 o'clock sharp. Evidently, everyone didn't get the memo like my in-laws. Uh, because at 2 o'clock, my in-laws were nowhere to be found. Now, I assume they weren't seeing it out in some kind of protest against my marriage. I don't think so. I hope I would have known that beforehand. But they weren't there. Now, to my family, this was a scandal because, you know, you have two kinds of people. You have my parents who the, the measure of the worth of the human being is whether or not you can be on time, being punctual. And that doesn't mean 2 o'clock. That means 1.45 or else you are late. My parents were very, very picky about that. Lisa's dad, a military man, was picky about that, but mom always worn out, and so Lisa's mom and the grandparents, they were nowhere to be found. And my mother was at the door 
of the pastor's office come to see me about this development. Well, by God's grace, they eventually showed up, and as you can see, we're married, and uh, it was, but it was a bit of a scandal. It was a problem. It was a problem that kind of endured beyond the wedding, let's say, but it's okay now. It's been a long time, and uh, we're thankful for that. But a crisis in a wedding, it wasn't a big crisis, but the one we have before us today was much larger than the text might indicate, or you might think at first glance, the, 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 the occasion on which Jesus uh, performs his first miracle. And how important are weddings in the Bible? Well, think about this. Where do we begin in Scripture? I mean, weddings are important to us, right? We think weddings are important. You thought your wedding was important, I'm sure. But in Scripture, we begin with a wedding, right? Adam is married. God performs a wedding. And then where are we going? Where do we end? Well, we end with a wedding feast, right? We're going to see that toward the end of the, of the sermon today. But so the Bible kind of bookends itself with weddings. So weddings are important. I've done a lot of weddings. I like doing weddings. I actually prefer to do funerals and <laughs> we'll get into that. That's a, a whole different thing for a, a talk for another time. But, um, and uh, my friends think I'm crazy, but uh, weddings are important. A wedding is important to God. Now, we begin, we looked, uh, took a long time, I realized, to get through the first chapter. There's a lot of stuff in there. And so we begin here on the third day. And I think he's referring here to three days after the last event in John chapter 1, which was his encounter with Nathaniel. We looked at last week. God's beginning to draw disciples to himself. And so that's where we find ourselves. And we come to, in this first five verses, a crisis much worse than the crisis of not being punctual, as it turns out. And so, of course, as it is in our society, a wedding uh, in Palestinian times, the ancient Near East was a major social event, but it was a celebration that lasted often for an entire week. Can you imagine that? A wedding lasting for an entire week, or at least a feast with a lot of wine? <laughs> well, that's, uh, that, that's asking for trouble, right? But that's how it was, five days. You had to pay for five days of food and five days of drink and five days, and so things could run out. And so we learn early in this account that the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there. It's a, probably, uh, she was probably involved in some form or fashion in the wedding. Maybe she was a wedding planner, I don't know. But she was probably involved in, in, the, uh, in serving in the wedding. And I think it's interesting that, the, the, that John never calls her Mary. He calls her the mother of Jesus. But it's never Mary. Which I, uh, I, I, I don't know why, but that, that is just an interesting fact. Um, Jesus and his disciples, they were on the guest list, and they were in attendance, uh, as we learn here as well. And so we're in verse 3, the wine ran out. And again, this is the problem. Much more of a faux pas than the, the being late, the, the lack of punctuality. I guess it's kind of like the time CFBC, we ran out of coffee. Remember that day? Don Hargan was really upset. We ran out of coffee. But this is a crisis far worse than that. Because it was a, a social faux pas, but not, not merely an occasion for grumpiness. I mean, so, so it would have been something like running out of food, like in the first few minutes of a wedding, or running out of cake, or not having a cake. It was a scandal. Mary tells her son, Jesus, they have no wine, because the wine has run out. And it's embarrassing. This is why it's a scandal. It's embarrassing to the couple, the family, because evidently they didn't order enough from the caterer. They just didn't do much. Or some, maybe somebody's doing a lot of drinking. We have no idea why, but they ran out of wine. Now, in ancient Near Eastern times, the bridegroom was responsible for 
paying for, providing for the food and the drink. It's not like the, it's on the dad with, uh, now what is it our, uh, our, 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 what is it our tradition is now? I have two daughters, I don't have to pay for their weddings, right? My wife had reminded me this yesterday, and so we're hoping it's a while before they get married. But, uh, and then the, uh, the, the groom's family prays for the, the boys. But this, in this, uh, the ancient Near East, the bridegroom paid for the whole thing. And so it would have been a major, major embarrassment. Again, a major social faux pas for him and for his family. How in the world could they run out of wine? What's next? The fried chicken? We're going to run out of that next? Is that what's happening here? Are these people that cheap? Now, it's not clear from the text whether Mary expected Jesus to perform a miracle. It's not clear what she expected at all. I mean, it could be the case that the fact that she was probably a widow, we think Joseph it never mentions him. He could have been there, not been mentioned, but it's, a lot of commentators seem to think that he might have been dead by this time. And so uh, if, if that, that being the case, she may depend upon her, first, her firstborn son. But of course, Mary knew who Jesus really was. She knew his capabilities. She knew that he had been born of a virgin. She knew about the amazing things said of him by a great host, including the angel Gabriel, the shepherds, and Simeon, and Anna. She was there for all this, an eyewitness to these things. She knew who he was. She'd watched him live a sinless life and had seen him increase in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. And she'd likely heard John the Baptist's recent pronouncement, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She knew who he was. And it might be that she was prompting, giving, given this exchange between Mary and Jesus and his answer, his reply to her, it might be that she, he was, she was prompting her son to reveal himself publicly as the Messiah she knew him to be. No doubt she was proud of him. I mean, this is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, right? Why don't you just come out and reveal yourself? But Jesus' response might take us back a little bit, just, just a little bit. Because he says, what? Woman? What does this have to do with me? In our current culture, <laughs> this might lead to someone being canceled, right? Saying, woman, what does this have to do with me? Now, this is not an invitation for you guys, okay, just so you know. this is Because this isn't as rude as it seems to be. It's, in fact, it's not rude at all. Not, not at all. It's not impolite, but it's firm. But it's meant, I think, he addresses her this way, I believe, to put some distance between himself and his mother. Because the relationship is changing. His public ministry has now begun. And earthly relationships could not determine his actions, what he does. I mean, Mary wants to relate to him no longer as her son, but as her savior, as her Messiah. Because you see, she needed a savior. He goes on to say, my hour has not yet come. That's kind of what he's driving out. Not just being impolite, like, woman, I'm busy. No, no, no. He said, my hour has not yet come. If you're prompting me to reveal myself, I will operate on God's timetable, on the Father's timetable, doing the work the Father gave me to do and the timetable, the timing of the Father. So Mary was to relate no longer as just merely her son, but as her Savior, as her Messiah. And it was not yet God's appointed time for his full messianic glory to be revealed. He would, and we're going to see this, of course, as we continue to walk through John. He would perform miracles. He would make his divine power unmistakable to anyone with eyes to see, whom he gave eyes to see, as, of course, we will, uh, we will note. 
But the full revelation of his glory at the cross and in the empty tomb, empty tomb is yet to come. Is in the not too distant future, but yet in the future. And so Mary realizes that Jesus isn't saying no to her request. And so she says, do whatever he tells you. He's the Messiah. Do what he says. Obey him. And of course, that's good advice for us, isn't it? Maybe I could just, the sermon should be this morning. This is Jesus. He's the son of God and son of man. Do what he tells you. That'd be a good sermon. J.C. Ryle suggested we could just preach that as a sermon, right? And Spurgeon said something similar. That's it. Do what he tells you. That is sound advice. Mary knows who her son is. And whom he's the one whom God sent on a rescue mission. She knew what God had sent him to do. We asked the question, Mary, did you know? She knew. I believe she knew. Now, I want to say a word about Roman Catholicism because we live in a, uh, a city that is heavily Roman Catholic. Almost all my neighbors are a Roman Catholic, and obviously their theology is very different than ours. Roman Catholics use this text to support the claim that Mary is a kind of a mediatrix, kind of a, a female mediator between God and man. And the argument goes something like this. Since, Jesus, since Mary went to Jesus to ask him to solve this dilemma of the water being turned to wine, then we should go to him, go to her, to kind of get her to put in a good word for us. Go to her and Put in your request to talk to your son. See, I don't think that's what's clearly what's not going on here at all. In fact, this, this text argues very strongly against that. I mean, Mary, I mean, woman, what does that have to do with me? My time has not yet come, right? I mean, that, that answers, uh, I, I think this completely undermines this view, his, his response. He didn't say, well, I'm glad you told me that. I'll take it into consideration and I'll do it. Just bring all your quests to me. He doesn't say that, does he? He says, no, woman, my time has not yet come. This is not a mediatrix. She doesn't have special favors with God. I mean, Jesus doesn't deal with us through some form of cronyism or favoritism. We all come to him. We all come to Christ in the same way. None of us are mediators. There is, Scripture is very clear. There, that Christ is the one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, 1 Timothy 2.5. We know that text well. We've taught through that text. One mediator, and it's not Mary. And so that's a, that, that's a false teaching, I believe. Of course, we learn here a lot about marriage. Marriage is, is sacred. I know everybody in this church, that's one of our core values, isn't it? And I know that you all believe that. I'm preaching to the choir here. Marriage is, is a sacred bond. I mean, by attending a wedding and performing his first miracle there, Jesus sanctified both the institution and the ceremony itself. We are right to venerate marriage. And regardless of what the Supreme Court of the United States tells us, marriage is a sacred covenant, an exclusive sacred covenant, a union of, of one man and one woman whereby they become one flesh in God's sight. That's how God defines, that's how God's inspired word and inerrant word defines marriage. And that's how we are to define marriage. And anything that's not that is not marriage. Just plain and simple, right? And we can rail against that all we want to, but it, the law of the land is not the law of God. And so Jesus venerates marriage here and so should we. Not marriage just as we define it, but marriage as scripture defines it. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. I know you believe that. But in our, our society today, that's a very controversial statement, isn't it? I really never thought I'd live to see the day when that would be true, that that would cause a, a brawl, that this is man. Now, marriage wasn't, has always been seen in a, 
and a good light now. I mean, in, in growing up, I mean, uh, a lot of people would live together without the benefits of marriage. That was very popular. It remains that way. But now marriage is under fire from every, every corner, isn't it? But it's sacred. And God defines marriage for us. And Jesus venerates it, I think, by, by both the institution and the ceremony by being here. And this being the first miracle. Marriage is very important. But is that the wedding? And the wine has run out. And so we see in verses 6 to 9, now Jesus performs his first miracle. He tells them, fill the jars with water. Now there were six stone water jars there. For the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine. It's a very matter of fact, isn't it? Just the water become wine. And did not know where it came from. The servants who had drawn it, drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now, until the end. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. His disciples believed in him. And so the wine is, was being served in these six stone water pots. And they're normally used for, and I think this is a very important detail in, in, in interpreting this. And, and most, a lot of scholars agree on this, that they're normally used for ceremonial washing. Again, that's a very important detail in the, in the text here in accord with God's law. Some of which probably took place at the wedding. They probably washed, maybe cleansed their hands, cleansed the accoutrements that's used in the, the wedding, possibly in the ceremony. And they're made out of stone to keep out the impurity. It's, again, very important detail. Not a throwaway detail. I mean, I think the presence provides a clue to the meaning of the miracle and its inclusion in John's gospel. I mean, the water represents the old order of the Jewish law and custom which Jesus replaced with something better, a new covenant which the wine represents. So there's something new going on and Jesus signals that right here in this first miracle. The old covenant is being fulfilled in him and he is bringing it in a new covenant. Massively important. And think about the quantity of the wine. 100, probably 150 to 180 gallons filled it all the way to the brim. It shows the lavish provision of the, of the new age Jesus is bringing in, I mean, up to this time, the servants had drawn water to fill the vessels for ceremonial washing, but now they're drawn for the feast that symbolizes the Messianic banquet. Now there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That is the new covenant. What a glorious, glorious reality. We're just beginning to see, right? We see it. It's, it's kind of vague. It's sort of coming into focus here. As, as Revelation progresses from Old Covenant to New Covenant, we see it, don't we? We start to begin to see in these details. And this would not be lost on the disciples. And we see that, uh, that they believed in him. It's full of meaning. And they're to draw. He says... They're, they're full, they're full, they're full to the brim. Meaning ceremonial purification is completely fulfilled now, totally. The blood of bulls and goats will never, ever take away, cleanse us from our sins. Never purify us, right? 
Because the Messiah has come and he will. He will go to Calvary. He will shed his blood there. And they'll lose all their guilty stains. And brothers and sisters, that's why we're here, isn't it? We're here today. Those of us who are in Christ because we've had our sins taken away. That's what we gather. We're able to gather. We want to gather. We want to be here this morning worshiping God because he has done something else we could never do for ourselves. And the world out there, it's just it's passing us by. They're probably scoffing at us, wondering why we're in here around a book, seeking to arrange our lives around a book that's six to 10,000 years old, or at least reports history that's that old, right? But it's because of what he's done for us and in us and continues to do through us. We're here where we've been purified positionally, but we're being purified temporally. Our sanctification, that's a big reason why we're here. We've lost all of our guilty stains, and now we see it coming here. And we'll see it come into clear, sharper focus as we walk throughout John. Now, some of you say, well, what about wine? Did Jesus drink alcohol? Well, this is probably Welch's. I had someone tell me this, oh, just a while back. They said, you know, that wasn't wine. That was grape juice. That was Welch's. The Southern Baptists, we've kept Welch's in business for a long time, haven't we? Welch's wants to see the Southern Baptist Convention prosper, right, and grow, and churches be planted because they know we'll use the fruit of the vine, the unfermented fruit of the vine. This was not the unfermented fruit of the vine. We need to get over that, right? Jesus was drinking wine here. This is wine. It's very, very clear. The Greek word for wine means wine, right? Wine. You don't have to go to the seminary to have them tell you that. I can tell you that. It's wine. So did Jesus drink alcohol? Well, wine was a staple drink in the ancient Near East. Of course, there was no refrigeration in those days, and the climate was very warm, and so it had to be preserved some way, and uh, things had to be preserved, and drinks couldn't be preserved, so typically they would ferment, resulting in alcoholic beverage that could make you drunk. This wine could make you drunk. In fact, there probably were at this point. They've run out. They've, you know, these, these people have drunk a lot. They're on a little bit of a bender. Maybe some of them are. We don't know. Maybe the drunk uncles are probably all there. They've run out of wine, but this is alcohol. And we have to admit that, don't we? I know we, we've, we've passed a lot of, Southern Baptist Convention for about 30 years, they pass a you know, motion against alcohol. So what does that mean for us? Well, Jesus drank wine. And of course the wine back then to avoid getting drunk, wine was commonly diluted with water. It's not the same as it is today. It's much stronger today, usually. But it would temper the strength a good bit. A bit. So is it a sin to drink alcohol? Well, no, I don't believe it's a sin to drink alcohol. I think the Bible is very clear about that. It strictly and clearly forbids drunkenness, but not drinking alcohol. I mean, wine is a, soy, a, a sign of joy and mirth in many places of the Bible. And even Paul said, take a little bit of wine for your stomach's sake, right? For medicinal purposes. You can, of course, overuse medicinal purposes. Like Doug, our favorite show, National Potato Week and all these, you know. You can, you can celebrate all these occasions that are only faux occasions. But it, it appears in many places in Scripture, and not because it turns people into happy drunks. So, so it, it's wine, and it's not a sin. Okay, so there's that. So now I'm going to issue my word of caution. I'll tell you where I stand on this. Or my, this is my practice, okay? I don't think we've ever had this discussion here. And not that you care, but I'll tell you. I'm a teetotaler. I don't drink wine. I don't drink beer, I don't drink booze, I don't drink it. I don't like it, I don't like the taste of it for one thing, but I, but I don't drink it. 
And I think you have to be very, very, very careful with alcohol today. Yes, Jesus drunk it. Jesus didn't get drunk, <laughs> right? I think you have to be very, very, very careful. The Bible does not forbid drinking wine. It, it does, again, demands it even in some places. But really, I, I abstain from alcohol for a couple reasons, and I'll tell you why. My grandfather was an alcoholic, and he died drunk, 52 years old. And the alcohol had a lot to do with it. So I come from a long line of, or a significant line of people who can't control their booze, right? They can't handle drinking. And so that's a danger for me. Um, when I was younger, I did abuse alcohol. I used it for one reason and one reason only. And there were sinful reasons. And so for me, you know, that when, when I think of this, that's what I tend to think of. So I think it's better for me to abstain. And so I, I choose to do that. I know that's not the practice of everybody in this church. Some of you even make it, you've told me. Uh, but I think you have to be very, very careful. So I'm going to issue to you, since most of you are younger and maybe no one's cautioned you, I'm going to caution you now. We just had a marriage in our family destroyed by alcohol, by a young, young man and young woman. Abuse of alcohol was the thing that destroyed their marriage. Uh, in fact, he's... 35 years old and probably will not live to tell about it because of the abuse of alcohol. So it's very, drinks are strong today. You have to be very, very, very cautious. And I know some of you don't like that, but you're going to have to get over it because I can, I'm here to tell you, I think it's better to abstain, but it's not a, a matter of conscience for me. Uh, so, but, but I do, and so that's where I stand uh, on, on that issue. Again, I don't think we've ever talked about that before. I think it's just better for me to say no, and you are free to disagree with that, but not on the issue of drunkenness. I don't think we have that problem in this church. So wine. Jesus drank wine. Again, I'm giving you my asterisk there, okay? So there we go. There you go. Now you know where I stand. Some of you are grinning about that still. You think about that all afternoon, call and email me, and that will be just fine. I'm glad to talk about that. But here's one major lesson we learn. It's not about alcohol. It's not about wine. It's this. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Only God could perform this miracle, right? The Son of God was and is mighty in power. He is the creator with the power to make something out of nothing. It's what he did at creation. It's what he did here. It's what he does in the hearts of sinful people. It's how he saved you. He looked into your dark, sinful heart and said, let there be light. And there was light. Just as he didn't say anything, he just made the water into wine. Right? He is God. And what kind of wine did you make? Well, that's my last point. You've kept the good wine until now. Jesus does all things well. 150 to 180 gallons of the best wine on the planet in these days. Jesus had... The water pots had them filled to the brim, 30 gallons each. Again, he's not promoting alcoholic excess here, how to live the high life. But I think he's showing us that the life he gives is not sparse, but it's abundant to the full. And that's not coming from drinking alcohol, no connection there. The life he gives is overflowing, it's abundant, it's, it's full to the rim, isn't it? Just like when he fed 5,000. Fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, fed them all, and what happened afterward? Were they taking little teeny tiny bites of little, you know? No, they weren't doing that, right? They were fed, they were full, and what did they do afterward? They picked up 12 baskets of leftovers. They had, they had a lunch for tomorrow, didn't they? Because Jesus does everything in abundance. That's how he transforms us in abundance. Think about who you were and who you are now and who you're becoming. 
You know a bit of my testimony from what I've just said. And I've told you many times, it is beyond incredible that I'm standing here preaching God's word to you this morning. And I just, I still, after 25 years, just can't get over that. I don't think I'll ever get over it. That's probably a good thing. I hope it is. He does all things well, doesn't he? Twelve baskets full of leftovers of the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, think of lives from church history. Think of John Newton. Was there ever a fouler man who lived than the old slaveholder, the old sailor John Newton? By his own admission, one of the foulest Christians, as he put it, who's certainly ever walked the face of the earth. And what did God do in him? He was catechized by a godly mother when he was young, but then he went out to sea with his father, lived a terrible life. But God saved him. God God mightily worked in his life. God changed him and he wrote the greatest hymn probably has ever been written in the history of the church, or at least the most well-known hymn. I mean, even unbelievers. You go to a movie and they'll sing, they'll play on the bagpipes. What do they play on the bagpipes every time? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I found was blind, but now I see. That was his testimony. And that's the testimony of every Christian who's who's ever lived. But John John Newton knew sin. He knew what it was to sin boldly and to be rescued as a sinner. What a difference Jesus made at this wedding and what a difference he makes in our lives. I mean, here we see a symbol of his saving work, this great miracle of transformation. In verse 11, John identifies this as a sign, and that's very important. Underscore that. Because it's a, he's, he identifies that it's a sign because it speaks of a greater, a deeper spiritual reality. We don't want to overlook that for sure. It has a lot to do with how we apply this. And I think one of the main points is that salvation through Christ involves transformation of our lives. As we say every Sunday here, I mean, just as he turned water into wine, Jesus tells us in John 3, 3, we'll get to in a few weeks, unless one is born again, he cannot what? He cannot see the kingdom of God. And I think faith and seeing sight there are synonyms. But unless he's born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We will baptize my son here in a few weeks. We're baptizing him not because his parents wanted to be baptized, but because we see transformation happening. Things in him that only could only be true of a Christian. Behavior that could be only true of a Christian. Only God could do, right? We see that in our own lives. It's being born again. We're born again by the grace of, of Christ. Being transformed through God's mighty word. I mean, Jesus willed the, merely willed the water to change to wine. And likewise, he calls to us to make us his disciples and causes us to become spiritually alive and responsive to God. The new birth, he just does it, Right? We I mean, know also the quality of life Jesus gives. When the master of the feast tasted the wine, he was taken back. He said, wow, you've not saved the cheap wine, the Walmart wine for now, for last. I mean, usually you let everybody get, you know, they eat and they drink and they're merry and they get drunk. And then you bring out, you haul out when they don't notice. They're, they're too full or too drunk or too sleepy or too whatever notice. You bring out the bad stuff, the, the, the cheap stuff. But no, you brought out the best the best, right? I mean, he didn't, he didn't bring it out just, he brought, brought out, he didn't bring it out after they gotten falling down drunk, the cheap stuff, but the good stuff. So you've kept the good wine until now. Jesus does all things well. The wine was the best, which was unheard of. That's the way life in Christ is, isn't it? I'm not saying it's always easy, always good, but everything he does, he does well, and he does well in your life and in my life. Life without Christ is, is bitter, and, dull. and honestly, I look at the last week in our country, and if I weren't a Christian, I don't know what I'd think. 
I'm not sure how much I'd want to live in this culture. You know, if I didn't know him, if I didn't know, I didn't understand the sinfulness of man, but also the grace of God. I mean, life is bitter and dull, but the Christian life gets better and better and better the closer we walk with Jesus. Because the closer we draw to him, the more clearly we see our own sin. I mean, Calvin talks about this. So the more we see, the more we draw close to the light of Christ, the more we're, the, the light is shown on the darkness of our sin. And the more we're able to put our sin to death and, and, and mortify our sin and draw near to him and be more like him. And the sweeter it gets, the sweeter Jesus gets, right? And the sweeter life gets. Because the suffering that comes into our lives, the things that are going to come into your life day in and day out, these situations and circumstances in a fallen world, you're not going to be blown asunder by those things if you're in Christ. Now, you're going to suffer for sure, and it's a gift in many ways, the Bible says. It's part of our vocation as Christians, but you're not going to be blown off course. You're going to cling to him because he's your anchor. And life gets better and better and better the closer you draw to him because he fills it all the way to the top. And I think this is why you get, you, you, you get language of purification in here and things like that. Uh, Jesus is alluding to this, this life he gives and the, the fullness. God does not waste any of the details in the Bible. I'm not trying to allegorize this, but I think this is what it means. And we'll have warrant as we go through. John, you'll see more of this, the quality of life he gives us. Alexander McLaren wrote, Jesus Christ keeps the best to last. He gives, his gifts become sweeter every day. Advancing years, and I had a birthday this week, so this is really meaningful to me today. Advancing years make them more precious and more necessary. Amen and amen. The end is better in this course than the beginning. And when life is over and we pass into the heavens, the word will become, come to our lips with surprise and with thankfulness as we find how much better it all is than we ever hoped or dreamed it would be. Thou hast kept the good wine until now. If you're not walking with the Lord, flee to him today. If you're wondering why your life is just, you don't understand anything and it just gets worse all the time, flee to him. Make Christ your treasure. Make Christ your, your pearl of great price. He will never let you down. He will fill life to the brim, to the full. You'll lack nothing. And what is the purpose of all this? Well, verse 11. This, the first of his signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee, why? What to manifest his glory. John uses this word signs, describing Jesus' miracles. I mean, Jesus was, there was never just a bare display of power for him. It's not showing off, showing, hey, I've got the power, I can do this. No, 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 it's, it's about his glory, about the glory of God. I mean, the fact that John calls them signs shows they're intended to point to something that I said beyond themselves. Let's not forget that. To deeper spiritual realities that can only be seen through the eyes of faith have been opened by his grace. If you don't see it, Scripture says, it's because your eyes haven't been opened. Say, well, the Bible's just a boring book to me. Well, the, the Word of God resonates with the people of God. This first sign, John tells us the purpose. Jesus to reveal his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Of course, we know Jesus' greater glory is going to come at the end of the Gospel of John, the end of all the Gospels, right? Which the New Testament spends the rest of the time, Paul and the others explain and apply to us redemption. His greatest glory to be revealed in Calvary and, of course, at the empty tomb. Which is why we meet on the Lord's Day, right? This first day of the week to celebrate that, not just at Easter. His greatest glory would become then, but we see it revealed more and more and more along the course of his ministry, demonstrating his glory. 
I mean, John wants his readers to see the glory, to recognize Jesus' deity, that he is the divine son of God. And the disciples, by faith, perceive Jesus' glory behind the sign, and they put their trust in him. Of course, we know, as we looked at weeks ago, John 20, 30 and 31, John tells us this is the entire purpose for the gospel of John. He writes, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. There it is again. He did many other signs, which are not written in this book. This is the Reader's Digest version of Jesus' ministry, right? There's so much in it. John said, there's so many signs written. There's so, much, so many signs he did. They're not written down in the book today. But these are written so that with a purpose that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That by believing you may have life in his name. That's, that's why he wrote the gospel. And that's the purpose of his miracle. And all the miracles, ultimately... Not to just show off and say, boy, you know, they would add the Jews and say, we want to see a sign. And he wouldn't give them a sign, would he? He said, the sign of Jonah. And they're like, what are you talking about? I don't see any fish here. And we know he came out of the ground on the third day, right? But those with eyes to see, they see it and believe because God enables them to believe. And by believing, you might have life in his name. That's why we're here every single Sunday. You might have life in his name. It's very simple. Christian faith, as Pastor Doug loves to say, it ain't rocket science. This is why we're here every Sunday. To preach the gospel either so that you will have life in his name or have eternal life in his name or you have ongoing life in his name. He perseveres, grants you persevering grace in part through the preaching of the word. And things you've heard over and over again. Maybe you've heard this miracle, you've read it lots of times, but we need this, don't we? This is nourishment for our souls. I mean, the disciples saw both the sign and the glory. And the servants, they saw the sign too, but they didn't see the glory. They didn't turn to him. That, and that's my question for you. Okay, you see the sign, you read the word, you come to church, you do your religious thing. You see the sign, but do you see the glory? Has God enabled you to see the Son of God for who he is and flee to him in repentance from your sins and faith in him as the way, the truth, and the life, the only way, the only road to heaven? See the signs, but do you see the glory? The servants did, the disciples did. That's what the parable the sower communicates. And there's some, the seed falls into the hearts, into the soil, and some, uh, some are hardened and some fall away, and for some it's too tough and they go away because they're never one of us. But then those who, in whom it bears fruit, they are the true disciples. We see that in the servants versus the disciples here. Okay, wrapping up a couple of application, quick application points here in addition to what we've already said. Christianity is a joyful religion. It's heavy. It's serious. And we should be serious and serious-minded about this. It is true that Christians are to be a serious people, living with a purpose daily in service to God for His glory. But those who know us should wonder what makes us so lively. Jesus was at a wedding feast. We should enjoy our lives. I mean, people tend to think of Jesus only in terms of his divine nature. They say, well, he was a religious man. To think of his religious side, this very austere prophet, priest and king. And, of course, he is that. But he's also human. They say, well, he went around performing miracles and correcting the Pharisees and preaching and teaching about the kingdom and theology and all these things. But the account of this miracle shows a bit of a different side of him, I think. He was a man of joy. 
a man of joy. He's at this celebration, a joyful occasion, and he, he was on the guest list, evidently, not just his mother. There's a lesson here for us. J.C. Rowell puts it better than I could. He said, the Christian who withdraws entirely from society of his fellow men and walks the earth with a face as melancholy as if he was attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the gospel. But a cheerful, kindly spirit is a great commendation to a believer. It is a positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. A merry heart and a readiness to take part in all innocent mirth are gifts of inestimable value. They go far to soften prejudices, to take up stumbling blocks out of the way, and to make way for Christ and the gospel. So here's what I want to ask you. And we who are reformed, we need to be, we need to ask ourselves this. Charles Spurgeon is such a good example for, I know, we use Spurgeon for everything, right? It's always Spurgeon. <laughs> he just says it better than we ever could. But Spurgeon was a man of joy. Very humorous in many ways. And he had humor in the pulpit because it was part of the extension of his personality. We shouldn't be, we're not here to tell jokes. But, but that was in his preaching simply because that was part of who he was. He was a man of joy. I mean, do we take ourselves too seriously? We should take the gospel of blood earnest seriousness. We should never compromise this with gimmicks or laughter or funny games or anything like that. I'm not suggesting that. But we should be people of joy. We've been redeemed. Eternity settled. And we're free. We're free to enjoy the things God has made in this world. Of course, not to use our freedom as an occasion for the flesh. Paul speaks of that, and I'm not speaking of that. Yes, drink wine, but don't drink it the way uh, some of us have in the past. Don't use this occasion for, for sin. We've got to be joyful and wise, and that's not always difficult, right, in how we use our spare time. I think we need to be careful about it, know our own temperament, our own strengths and weaknesses, and act accordingly uh, in using our freedom. I mean, Raul said, one believer can go, go without risk where another cannot. Happy is he who can use his Christian liberty without abusing it. Indeed, it is true. Jesus was a man of joy. And here at Christ Fellowship, we should be people of joy. We shouldn't come every Sunday to a funeral. Now, there is pandemonium in some churches. We don't want that, of course, right? We are Southern Baptists after all. We are the frozen chosen, but we should be joyful. Had a music minister once asked me, he said, do you want me to always sing somber songs because we're reformed? I said, no, <laughs> no, we, I mean, there's an occasion for that. There's a time for joy, right? Because we are redeemed. And I want you to leave here today knowing you're redeemed and go enjoy your long weekend. We have a long weekend, right? Enjoy it. All the, enjoy it in a sanctified way with all the things God gives us. Another, another thing I want to quickly see here is I think the way Jesus performs this miracle is important. He didn't, he didn't command the water to become wine. He didn't say, stand up and say, hear ye, hear ye, or you know, he, verily, verily, nothing. There's no verily, verily here, right? It just happens. It just happens. And some of us wonder if Jesus, you know, we wonder we can't see Jesus. We see him in the elements. We take the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of every month. We, but we don't see him as we wonder, can he work? Is he at work in my life? How can he do that? He's there and we're here. But look at this. He's at work in turning the water to wine. He's at work in the same way in your life. He's not here, but he's here. He's here with us this morning, right? The Spirit of God and the, the power of the Spirit. We pray He's here this morning. He still exercises His almighty power on behalf of His people. He doesn't have to be bodily present for us to just to take care of us. He has no problem with that. He just does it. He wills our salvation. He wills the new birth. He also supplies all of our spiritual needs. And we're a safe 
and provided for. And he is as much of an anchor as if he were standing in this room right now, sitting back there on the back row or on the front row. Finally, this miracle signifies the transformation of the old order. Symbolized in the six stone water pots, the used for ceremonial washing, which details verse 6. Water becomes wine. The best wine for the end of the feast stands for eternal life in God's kingdom through Jesus Christ. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. Let's read this quickly. It provides a background, but let's, let's, here's a, here and in Revelation 9, 19, just read these things. It's a glorious place to end today. Isaiah 25, back in the Old Testament. Let's read this, verses 6 to 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a rich, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. There will be no more school shootings. And there will be a need for a list of charlatan pastors. No more. No more of that. This is what's coming. And this miracle is a preview of it. He will swallow up on this mountain. The covering cast over all the people. This covering of of sin. This malaise of sin. We see it all around us, don't we? The veil that's spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. We have his promises. And beloved, you live in light of his promises. This week you'll go out into the world with devils filled, as Luther put it, that's fallen, that's decaying all around you, but you can go with this certain and settled hope because he said he has spoken these promises. And it's settled and it's certain. And you're going to a greater feast of which you can, even, even Southern Baptists, and we love our potluck, don't we? Have that once a quarter, look forward to that, but we can never imagine the kind of feast we're going to. Revelation 19, we close here. Six to nine. Then I heard, John the Revelator writes, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb, this is the marriage supper of the Lamb, the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You've been made righteous. You've been been made ready. You've been clothed in his righteous garments, made ready for this great feast that is to come. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Friends, will you be invited to that great feast on that day? As we leave here this morning, let's prayerfully ponder that. If the answer is yes, rejoice. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. And you will be at this feast. Let's pray together. Father, there is so much in here, and I know that I always feel like I've just skimmed the top. There's so much nourishment. 
so much good, solid food for us here. So God, feed us in a way that will sustain us through the week. Drive us to your word. Drive us to our knees. Drive us to yourself. We thank you, Lord, for that great feast that is to come that all those who are in Christ will enjoy. God, I pray if there be those here today, someone who says, I, I, don't, I don't have any hope of that. I'm just beleaguered by the world I see around me, this decaying world around me. God, I pray you would work in that heart. Draw them, O oh Lord. Pour out your spirit upon them. Convict them of sin and unrighteousness and open their eyes to see this glorious kingdom that is to come through Jesus Christ, your son, who turns water into wine for your glory. Amen.